these kids, they're going to change the world. They are changing it. Welcome to LTRI, Lake Travis Research Initiative. Did you smell the water? Yeah, it's disgusting. Are you from Austin? Or anywhere in the Northeast U.S. for that matter? If so, you might have smelt something fishy. And by fishy, I mean clammy. And by clammy, I don't mean like a little sweaty. This is your weird research mom, Callie Nichols, and I have a bunch of fun international science fair facts in my fanny pack, and I'm ready to unzip it and get this party started. This episode, I interview a high school kid who likes to strap heavy equipment on his back, jump into freezing cold water, sink, and then blow bubbles. Okay, yeah, he likes to scuba dive. And what he found was something out of a Stephen King novel. Well, not really, but it sounds creepy, eerie, and just sad. Let me introduce you to the kid that competed against 80 different nations last spring as he strives to save the world one bivalve at a time. So cleaning, training, and drying boats every time they come out of the water can prevent the tiny microscopic creatures who lurk there from ending up in lakes and rivers where they shouldn't call home. It's the best defense we have against the ever-growing world of the silent invaders. Jack, I'm so glad we were able to sit down together just in time before you're off to Japan and college. Such exciting moments in your life right now. My first question has to be, why? Why these silent invaders? Why zebra mussels, Jack? What was your inspiration? Um, well, I guess when I started scuba diving around the Austin lakes and rivers, um, you kind of get down below 30 feet and there's just a wasteland of mussels. They kind of, they encrust on all the um, natural surfaces and then starve out native species. And I had always heard about zebra mussels when I was a kid, but I'd never really seen the devastation firsthand. Um, but after going diving a few times, I started looking into their anatomy and physiology because I was curious about like what allowed them to proliferate so fast. Um, and they were ex- they're incredibly good filter feeders. One zebra mussel can filter two liters of water a day and can filter out bacteria one micrometer in length, which is really astounding until you consider until you remember that they're they're competing with all the native species and starving them out. So while, and because they filter out like bacteria and plankton, the water quality does look a lot clearer, but all the native species are being starved to death. So clear water is not necessarily good water. No, good. All right, let's just take a little brain break and really define what an invasive species is. An invasive species is any species that just Okay, they completely take over and kill everything in their path and cause damage. I mean, a lot of damage. And they destroy entire ecosystems. And they're awful. They're just awful. I mean, okay. Invasive species can be plants or animals or any species that is brought to a new habitat, either on purpose or by mistake, and sort of bully the native species to the point where they just can't survive or they're really struggling. They're usually hardier more demanding, and reproduce much faster. 
Since they are new to a habitat, they don't have any natural predators. They're unchecked. There aren't any species to stop them from just taking over. If you want to Google it, there's a pretty cool video about some invasive species of carp. Just Google carp invasive species, um, and I'll whack you over the head with some of that knowledge. Anyway, back to zebra mussels. They're actually one of the most aggressive freshwater invaders because their population numbers grow so quickly. Massive populations of zebra mussels filtering water can severely impact native plankton, which is food for our fish. And these fish that need the plankton have to find a new source of food or they got to move to a new lake. Unfortunately, not any old species can just hop in another lake. Zebra mussels also leave very little for native mussels to filter, causing them to starve as well. On top of all of that, I guess it's kind of important that we mention that they cause millions of dollars in damages every year. Um, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. How did this start? Talk, tell us how it all started. This started as an independent study project back in, it was, what was it? It was um, April 2018 when I was just looking to build my college resume or like kind of get some science experience because that's what I want to study. Um, and I just had, I had this idea which I didn't really know how to start. Um, but I figured the best place would be to get in contact with someone at the, like the Texas Parks and Wildlife or some other organization. And um, I, of course, I was asking around the school once my senior year started, and I talked to I talked to Miss Gidley, Mr. Hall, and then you, and you in, in immediately said, "Oh, you have to join the science fair." Yeah. And I did not even know the science fair existed at that point. Um, I didn't know ISEF was a thing or that there were science fairs for high school students. I thought that was just something we did in middle or in elementary school, which I placed terribly in fifth grade. <laughs> That's um, ironic. But after that, it kind of just led from one thing to another, talking to professional biologists at the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, um, getting a permit, and then freezing to death in uh, Lake Travis, <laughs> collecting zebra mussels. And then from there to regional fair, um, placing best and fair, one of, the six one of the six best and fair projects, advancing to state, um, earning first in earth environmental sciences and then also state champion for life sciences and then from there to um second earth and environmental sciences at ISEF. Wow that makes it sound so easy but these um fairs weren't really like middle school were they? Oh absolutely not no. How is it different? Um well in middle describe it. See in elementary school I mean you're just standing on your project presenting to one judge um at the regional fairs I was standing between two students from Vista Ridge who had done this, had competed in this at least three times oh, wow. beforehand. This was my first time as a senior and they were both juniors who knew, or no, sorry, one of them was a freshman who was doing, who had done it throughout her middle school career. And they both knew exponentially more about all of this than me. Um, <laughs> let's see, they, instead of presenting just to one judge, you have about three different, you have a minimum of three judges typically. And then if they like your project, they'll recommend it to other judges who will come by. And it just gets very nerve-wracking. But you eventually get into this rhythm of, I say this, and then this, and then this. And then if, they, if there's a pause, you can say this. Um, 
it, it's easier said than done. Most of the time was me just winging it <laughs> and hoping for the best. Um, but it, it comes down to a lot of like, can you read the judges? Can you tell like what they're thinking? How they're, are they interested in this? I think that's probably mostly what you mean by winging it is like being able to read the judges mm-hmm. and then being able to smoothly communicate what you know. Yeah, can you do it? Depending on what they have to say. Yeah, exactly. Can you... Um, kind of can off you, the cuff. Can you, can you, can you uh, tailor your speech to the specific judge on the fly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, it's obvious after talking to every kid that has participated in science fair thus far that they're not in it for the awards or the money, but it certainly never hurt. Jack is our most awarded science fair participant in high school history. Okay, it was our very first year of school affiliated science fair, but let me share what Jack walked away with. He, her- he earned an amazing 14 different awards at the regional science fair. He earned an additional um, award called the Stockholm Award online. He earned four more awards at the state science fair, and then again, he earned another award at the international science fair. He also earned just shy of $2,000, and get this, this is the best part in my opinion. A professor at MIT named a meteor after him. Yes, there is a Meteor de la Santi, and of course they guaranteed us that it won't crash into Earth during our lifetimes, so we're all safe. Okay, we're going to backtrack just because a couple sentences ago, you said something about freezing in the water, getting the zebra mussels. Can you talk me through that? Because I really haven't heard the specifics of that adventure. Let's see. Okay, so this was back on when I got my my first permit. um, It was like, it was, was, no, it was December because I had the second permit in January. Okay, talk about the permit. Okay. So to get a permit in the in the state of Texas for ze- for an invasive species, not not zebra mussels, but just any invasive species, it's a two hundred sixty three dollar fee. And it takes several months. I had um a friend, Lauren Reynolds, at the Texas Parks and Wildlife, who helped me expedite the process, but it was still took way longer than I was hoping it would. Um, but after finally going through different revisions of my application and then finally receiving a permit, I had about a week left in the year of twenty eighteen to collect the muscles after which you have to fire you have to file a research summary report explaining what you've done so far what you plan to do in the future how many muscles you have in your possession and then it's another $27 meaning it's a $300 permit fee for 2 years okay i got the permit for 2018 on like december i think it was the day before christmas i think it was december 24th Merry christmas yeah really <laughs> and then december 27th i think um, myself and a friend, Gianluca Bigini, who I cannot thank enough for helping me with this. I think I texted him like a day before, Hey, I'm going to go diving tomorrow and collect zebra mussels. Do you want to come? It'll be freezing. And that was an understatement. And he's, he was, he, he went along with it because I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. Um, I'm like, I earned my scuba diving certification on the California Monterey area. So it's, it's like cold kelp foring, kelp forests full of upwelling. So I thought I knew what I was getting myself into with my, I think I gave, I gave John Luca my five millimeter wetsuit. I had a three millimeter, basically surf suit. And that was the most miserable diving I've ever done. I, I had like a tank and a regulator and everything, and like a BC to like actually go underwater. But it was so cold that I could not do that. You're like, nope. I probably would have gone (laughs) to hypothermic shock. Hard pass. What do you think the water temperature was? Maybe like 35 degrees. Oh my god.
summer right now and I went swimming when it was 71 the water was 71 degrees and I was shivering so I can't even imagine 35 um, most of Lake Austin has a very um kind of unique what is it a, it's a thermocline where you have like bath water um temperature water at the top and you get below 30 feet as it's, it's freezing cold down there yeah but this was just all freezing <laughs> um how do you get the muscles like where did you go and how'd you get them? So we went to Windy Point Park, which is a it's a private park. Um, normally they were closed. Uh, another thing that took me forever to get the muscles was due to the flooding of 2018, 2018's winter and like all the all the waste and everything being um, flushed into the waterways. They were all kind of just like bristling with trash and waste. Gross. It was really terrible. And Windy Point had closed down, and that was like one of the best places I knew that there was zebra mussels. Um, there was a post, I was looking around some different, um, I was looking around like trying to find some areas with zebra mussels and I stumbled across a picture on um, the Texas Reddit with um, a man's hand completely sutured up and uh, due to like just him, I don't know, <laughs> it was his hand completely covered in stitches after he had um, gone diving at Windy Point. Oh and my gosh. His hand too quick or too fast onto a bed of muscles and they totally ripped his hand open sliced it all up yeah so i knew that i knew they were there oh my gosh um but i contacted the guy who owns windy point park and i told him what i was doing and he's like oh yeah we have plenty of muscles you can calm down whenever um so at that point the water was just about clear enough but it was still absolutely freezing cold um so i think it was the, tw the tw december 27th john luca and i get down there i have like all the things for scuba diving I get one foot in the water and it's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, there's a there's a small so Windy Point is kind of like a um, a drop off area. There's a small cliff with a ladder you can walk down. You can just walk down into the water, which makes it really good for scuba diving. Um, and I figured there'd be a bunch of mussels encrusting that ladder. Um, and I got my tank and everything hooked up, and I dive probably about like maybe ten feet down, and there's. I can't see anything. The visibility is way too low. So instead, we um, end up swimming about 30 meters offshore to the um, to a buoy that kind of like marks a, like a no-wakes zone. And we have a bucket out there, and we're just scraping mussels with a, with a knife into the bucket. Is that the only way you can really get them off is by using a knife? Yeah, because the best way you can... The best method of doing it is because they're so prolific and they're encrusting growers. One muscle will, like one layer of muscles will go over to the base surface, um, and then there will be more and more muscles crusting on, encrusting on top of that, and, and on top of that, and on top of that. Until you like a very large like muscle mountain, a muscle mountain basically. <laughs> um, so when you scrape it, you're kind of scraping from the base layer. So the ones that are on the lowest point will probably get like chopped, chopped up. Um, but all the other ones on top of those will be perfectly fine. And then from there, to get them into like a petri dish or something, you have to carefully cut their bissel threads, which are the little tiny fibers that come out of their um, their ventral side with a scalpel. Okay. And then place them individually into dishes. Okay, so when you got your muscle mountain home, you had to go one muscle at a time and cut them apart. Yes. We never talked about that before. <laughs> That's fun. So you're doing like scalpel surgery in your dining room. Yeah, I have. <laughs> so let's see. Um, before no, this was it was after I got home. I hadn't set up any of the um, 
I hadn't set up any of the holding tanks for them yet. So after like taking a very hot shower and um, hiking back out to the pond behind my house and collecting some like fresh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I had that wrong. Um, I hadn't set up any of the tanks before uh, before going out and collecting the mussels. So afterwards, um, after I got home with the cooler full of mussels and um, lake water, filling up a holding tank with them, setting up the aeration, and then realizing that I have to put all these mussels into separate dishes to acclimate. That was a process of carefully finding kind of like chunks of mussels that you could then surgically remove the bissel threads and then individually like count out 12 mussels, put them in a dish, put that dish in the tank, and then move on to the next one and so forth until I had about, what was it? It was 12 dishes, each with 12 mussels, acclimating for a week. And the remaining mussels were all put into another holding tank, which was aerated and just fed with normal water. Okay, so why were you splitting them all up like that? Each of the dishes was going to be used for a different experiment. When I first started that, that's how I thought it was going to work. Um, originally, I wanted 12 mussels in each dish for each different ex experiment, being a different type of CMC and a different um, concentration of that CMC. Um, but then eventually I moved on to where I had multiple dishes for each for each experiment, giving me like a larger um, population and more accurate results. Okay. Um, but originally it was going to be 12 mussels in a dish with the respective CMC in that dish sitting for like 30 minutes and then being placed back into normal pond water and monitoring their behavior. And you have to have them in the dishes because one thing I learned after about four days of holding mussels is that they can move. So I had mussels crawling up and over the sides of the dishes um, because apparently they don't like being in the bottom of a environment. They like being up on the top side. I guess because there's more water flow around that area. But apart from that, um, I don't know, the mussels were just, I had about a week to learn about their normal behavior and monitoring what they normally do. Okay, so you kept them for a week and just watched them. It ended up being where you could just watch them and, yeah. and figure out what they liked. But then what did you ultimately end up doing? Uh, ultimately, I began experimenting with the acute exposure experiment, which was submerging them in 0.2%, um, 1%, and 2% CMC solutions, four different brands for 30 minutes, monitoring, monitoring their behavior during those entire 30 minutes, seeing like which what the muscles, how they acted when submerged in a hydrogel solution, how their behavior changed, were they, were they moving, were they siphoning, and then placing them back into normal pond water and monitoring your behavior for another 48 hours. Okay, so what was your objective? You mentioned four different brands of CMC and four different concentrations so of CMC. What was the point of all of this? CMC, or carboxymethylcellulose, it's a common food additive. It's used as a thickening agent in many um, like meat substitutes or condiments. Um, it's a... It's a cellulose chain with carboxyl groups on it, meaning that it has two distinct properties, its viscosity and its degree of substitution. Viscosity being how thick of a, how thick a solution is based on the um, cellulose chain's molecular weight, and the degree of substitution, which is how many carboxyl groups are located on one cellulose chain, which affects how easily it can be dissolved into a solution. Um, the more carboxyl groups are on one cellulose molecule, the easier it can be dissolved into a solution. Okay, why are those two things important? Um, because they affect how much you need how much cmc you need for a desired um viscosity and also how easily you can 
mix up you can mix up a solution of that specific CMC because when I was originally trying to use a five percent solution instead of a two percent, I was standing over cut open I was standing above one gallon water jugs that were cut open with a electric mixer and trying to make basically add um flour to jello. If you can imagine how miserable that is, it's it was basically that. If you have um if you have that viscous of a solution, um it's unlikely that the muscles will siphon any of it. Right. So what am I saying? So they would just suffocate almost immediately, but then it would also be... I don't know if it's that they would suffocate, or I think it would more be that they can't actually siphon it, it's so thick. So you right. kind of need, you need to find a sweet spot between viscosity and degree of substitution, where you can mix it into a solution easy enough, but it's still viscous enough that it'll, it'll do its job of, siphon, of suffocating the muscles. Okay, so your whole idea was to suffocate the muscles. Yes. If I'm understanding correctly, you're... Muscles are filter feeders, Mm -hmm. so they're sucking in water and blowing it out and trying to get food out of that water. Yeah, exactly. And so you're making a viscous solution so that when they suck it in, it actually gets jelly-like on their siphon. Ideally, it would. They would inhale it because muscles are bivalves. They have two different. They have an incurrent and an excurrent siphon. So they would inhale it through their incurrent siphon. It would stick to their gills, clog them up, and potentially stop them from siphoning anything else, or at least deprive them of oxygen or nutrients. Okay, that makes sense. And then why would you want the degree of substitution, um, the way you explained it earlier, made it sound kind of like uh, it was biodegradable. Is that why that part's important? The degree of substitution? Oh, Mm -hmm. no. So CMC can be thought of a lot of like the pages of a, or at least like um, any cellulose, can be thought of like the like basically pages of a book. Cellulose is, like, is, a, is a chain-like molecule, and it's not normally um, dissolvable in water. Um, it requires carboxylation, um, which is the process that CMC undergoes to become the state that it is. Um, uh, let's see. So a cellulose chain is normally like layers and layers of cellulose all pressed together, meaning that no water can. Um, can proliferate the layers and layers of CMC that are pressed together, kind of like the pages of a book. But the second you start adding carboxyl groups, it becomes um, more displaced, and there's like hole, there's holes for the water mon- molecules to pass through. Um, so the more carboxyl groups you have, the the further those pages are displaced, and water can enter and pass through and allow it to be allow the CMC to be dissolved into the water. So you still have these long molecular chains of, of um, cellulose that can't be dissolved. Um, sorry, that can't be um, dissolved down into, into smaller parts, but there's still these long intact chains of uh, cellulose that can then clog the filters. Okay, so... Um, no, I understand the part of like the pages, because it, it's beneficial that those, um, what is it, the carboxyl groups make the pages kind of fan out right Mm -hmm. so more water can get inside yeah but does that also in turn make it biodegradable at some point if water can break it down well it is biodegradable it it, it just takes some like it takes external forces like some sunlight or some cellulase that that are naturally found occurring in um environments i'm not sure if degree of substitution affects um biodegradability actually okay Um, so what were your results? What did you figure out? Um, let's see. So I, I ran three different um, experiments in acute, prolonged, and chronic exposure to replicate three different environments the muscles are found in. 
um, acute replicating a river ecosystem where CMC was placed on the muscles for about 30 minutes before being um, kind of washed away by the um, river and being allowed to sit in normal pond water for two days. And during the 30 minutes, the zebra mussels did exhibit some strange behavioral changes. They had some um, twitching of their siphons. They were like unsure whether or not they wanted the siphon substance. Um, some mussels closing off altogether while some um, at least testing the, um, the solution they were submerged in. But after about the after the two days, um, none of the mussels' behavior had changed at all. They're all completely siphoning normally, so they were unaffected by the CMC solutions. Um, to replicate a lake environment, I designed a prolonged exposure experiment. It was mussels sitting in the solution for two days as it gradually dissolved into the surrounding water column. Okay. The um, this would what was I saying? The lake one. Uh, yeah, this this is designed to replicate a lake environment where the mussels would be sitting in stagnant water. CMC would, would be deposited and would gradually dissolve into the surrounding water column. Um, this was two days of mussels in their CMC solutions within a within a tank, so the CMC would, would gradually um, disperse throughout the water. But during this time, the mussels had some drastically altered behavioral changes. Um, siphons were distended. There was one mussel pinching off its siphon with its shell, as okay. well as some with just gaping shells and. Um, uh, uh, distended siphons, I think I already said that. Um, but none of the muscles that actually died from this exposure, they were all just had... So after the CMC solution dispersed throughout the water, the rest of the water in the tank, they were fine? They were still fine. I guess it was either not a long enough... I, I assume it was either not a long enough exposure or not a um, high enough viscosity to kill them effectively. So I moved on to a chronic exposure experiment using two using only two of the CMC solutions from the previous experiment which I was using 12 different solutions I selected the two that yielded the most behavioral changes and selected and um subjected uh let's see it was it was 24 muscles um this test was run six different times muscles are known to be like really damaging to infrastructure specifically within pipelines where they just encrust and fill up an entire um like water pipeline it's just specifically down in the um Austin water project they had a huge infestation right before the regional fair with them. The mussels completely encrusting their pipes and having divers and they were hard divers to go in and physically remove them by hand. So this was another environment I wanted to tackle. Um, very demanding. Yeah. Labor intensive. Mm-hmm. So let's see. It was in order to replicate a pipeline environment, I had a chronic exposure experiment where the solution would remain con- the solution concentration would remain constant for about six days. Um, and using the two CMCs from the prolonged exposure experiment that yielded the most behavior, the most significant behavioral changes. Over the six-day experiment, after only one day of um, exposure, the... He saw the car go by. Oh, okay. Start over. Let's see. After... It, within the six-day exposure experiment, after only one day of CMC exposure, the amount of muscles that are siphoning had dropped drastically, while the, oh, let's see, and throughout the, and, and hmm, that's what it is. I'm okay. I gotta like refresh myself with what You're I said during the fair. Um, over the six day experiment, after only one day of exposure, the number of siphoning muscles dropped to about 10% of what it originally was and remained that low throughout the entire six days, while the number of deceased muscles continued to rise throughout the entire six day exposure, just peaking at about. Um, a little bit over 50% of muscles deceased after the six-day experiment. So that means that within a pipeline environment, um, 
concentrated CMC does hold in promise for remediation, at least killing off a large population of the mu- a large um, or a majority of the muscles, and then allowing like the physical means that are currently being employed to actually be more effective, um, as well as just drastically reducing their siphoning um, activity, meaning that if you left them in there long enough, they would likely all starve to death. Right. Yeah, because who's to say you have to stop at six days? Yeah, exactly. You depending, could do it longer. Depending on how long you want to close off a pipeline, you could fill it with CMC and let it sit there for two weeks and kill off 100% of the muscles. So theoretically, you should be able to pump your CMC solution into the pipes with it capped, mm-hmm. wait a couple weeks so that they all suffocate, and then flush the pipe out, and now it's a clean pipe? Yeah, it's a clean pipe. There's nothing... Um, if, if the water flows... if it's a, it's a it's a clean pipe. All the muscles in there are dead. There might be there might still be some encrusting, but they'll their bristle threads will eventually degrade and they'll all wash out. They can either like use the shells for like fertilizer or something. Um, they're just like um, calcium carbonate, so they can be used as as, as a so soil additive. What kind of um, further testing would need to be done before something like this could happen? Uh, it would definitely have to be seeing how this affects uh, like other native species of mussels. If you can contain the CMC on a muscle bed in like a lake environment and make sure it doesn't like get washed away, and also how long it'll typically how long it'll take to biodegrade within like a Lake Austin environment. So if you're just pumping it into pipes for now, mm-hmm. you're probably not. Do you think it would hurt other species? Not really. I mean, there's no other species within the pipes. Right. You'd have to be careful of um, the proteins that zebra, that zebra mussels produce when they die. Um, I've seen that those can actually have some damaging effects okay. on other species. Um, and for the most part, after you, if after the um, exposure to the mussels, if you just pump out the CMC, even if you if, if um, you could make sure or you could um, remove that CMC just from the water altogether by pumping it out completely. But if a including small, maybe even the dead mussels and the yeah, water yeah. that the proteins and stuff that have been secreted in the water within that capped off pipe why couldn't you just pump all of that out it's it's all viscous enough so Mm -hmm. it's probably stay together um but any remaining cmc would be benign did you do any testing on um water quality after cmc degrade biodegraded into it uh not really but i not exactly not really so that would also probably be something like the ph of the water and yeah I don't think it'll affect the pH too much. It may affect the salinity just a tad because there is one sodium ion on carboxymethylcellulose. Okay. But apart from that. And then, yeah. I mean, that sounds like it's almost ready to go. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I've been in contact with a researcher from the Great Lakes area. His name is Daniel Malloy. He's now in a trip in Europe, I think, looking at their zebra mussel populations. Because he's working on a parasite that's uniquely targeting um, zebra mussels. Oh, and I've been in contact with him because he has a commercial product that uses a um, a bacteria strain, pseudomonofluorescence. I think it's one five four C. I think it's that, um, which is has a product. It's um, a compound in their cell wall that's you uniquely. Can article that is usually defined <laughs> as Alexa, the title. Whoa. cancel. <laughs> Whoa. Alexa's listening to us too. It's such a good conversation. <laughs> Daniel Malloy, he's for, and he has a product called Zequinox, which is a uh, biological remediation method. It's currently being like sold and used throughout the Great Lakes area where zebra mussels were first introduced. Um, but his product, unfortunately, has a very short um, activation time when, when, it's, when it's in the water. Because of the um, bacteria that it uses, they can only be um, 
like activated in an oxygen rich in an oxygen rich environment for about six hours, um, as well as it, you, it's kind of difficult to target the muscles with a um, the bacteria when you're just dumping it into a lake. So I was reaching out to him because I thought if you could use CMC as in in replace of like an agar or carrageenan culture, um, you could cultivate this bacteria on the muscles. And not only would it act as a transport to put the, the bacteria directly onto the muscles through the hydrogel of CMC, um, but the fact that it's a it's a gelatinous like um, substance, it would reduce the amount of oxidation the bacteria exposed, prolonging its not making well, it last like, longer. Life, yeah. yeah, they'd be able to survive longer. Mm-hmm. Um, has he gotten back to you? Once he got back to me the morning of um, finals judging at ISEF. Oh no! I opened my phone. Um, right after my second judge and I had an email from him and then he told me that he was leaving he's leaving to go on a trip where he's working in Europe right now on some other um, parasite based zebra muscle remediation methods which is really exciting and I'm I'm going to be continuing to contact him but he and I are on like different schedules schedules right now so hopefully yeah. we'll be able to work something out it'd be cool if you could like intern with him or something yeah, he has done a lot of um, like ecological survey work it's really really cool that's cool um you just mentioned ISEF. Okay, so if you Google Intel ISEF, all the pictures you see are of brilliant-looking teenagers holding, I don't know, certificates with ribbons on their jackets and a ton of confetti falling down. Some of them are crying, but they all have elation on their face. Obviously happy to be there. I needed to know a little bit more about what Intel ISEF was. So I started researching what the awards are like and how it went down last year when Jack was there. So first of all, what does Intel ISEF stand for? Well, ISEF stands for the International Science and Engineering Fair. Um, This is the world's largest international pre-college science competition. This is not your elementary and middle school science fair. Kids aren't lined up with their parents going through and judging them, scared to hurt their feelings. Yes, Johnny, your volcano looks great. Great paper mache. No, these kids are curing cancer, investigating Alzheimer's, uh, creating shark skin bandages for wounds. They are incredible. And this year, Jack, competed against almost 2,000 other high school students from 80 other countries, regions, territories, making it the largest Intel ISEF they've ever had. Students are awarded the opportunity to showcase their independent research and compete for, get this, $5 million in prizes. So we had about we had eight students in total um, from the Austin area going to ISEF, and they are all so they're all um, God they're all some of the most like brilliant amazing people I've ever met from like just being totally shy around each other in the Austin airport to that evening eating dry cereal in the hotel lobby. <laughs> um, yeah, y'all clicked pretty quick. Yeah, it was really. Why do you think that happened? I mean, I don't even know. It's, I would say that it is quick compared to um, something that, like some other other students in my high school. But at ISEF, it was kind of just everyone there is the same. 
and it's really easy to make friends with students who are also like-minded and passionate and driven. As a as a as a sponsor there, it seemed like ISEF really tried to emphasize that type of culture because they they kept saying things about meeting other students and meeting people from around the world yeah, so that you could potentially someday collaborate with them on work or mm-hmm. um have some like, comrades in the field when you're older and doing research. Yeah. kids do you think you spoke to from other countries i mean you probably didn't touch all 80 no i don't think i touched all 80 um i think i probably saw i definitely saw all 80 students all 81 con- all different countries that was one of my favorite parts was... the nation's shout out yeah, at the yeah, welcoming ceremony that was really really cool that was really neat um well okay so one of your favorite thing was just the connections and all the people you met from all over the world what are your other parts favorite parts um let's see I really enjoyed the chaotic nature of the um, poster making process. Oh my gosh, that's my least favorite part. It I was, left with a migraine. It was, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was terrible. But afterwards, my poster looked really, really good, and it was about like a very profound sense of accomplishment. Yeah, um, it took us three hours. Yeah, just about because, oh man, it was a mess trying to set that up for the first time without any knowledge of what I was doing. Right. Or what would be available to us. Yeah. And where we go to get things. I'm trying to figure out spray glue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about the pin exchange, because that's pretty unique, I think. The exchange is really exciting. I still have a bag of pins sitting on my um, dresser right now. So our regional sponsor gave each of all of the eight um, Austin students about 20 pins and you walk into this, we walked into this huge ballroom and there was about probably close to 1,600 kids from 80 countries hanging out in there. Um, it's incredibly loud and there's everyone just in like a flood of people. Um, and you don't really know who you're going to meet. Um, there's like, there was one corner of all the Brazil uh, students like chanting and uh, yelling Brazil. <laughs> and in another quarter, there was, I met all the Venezuela students. Um, but I met like people from Hong Kong and uh, Japan, and or there there was a really cool like, pin I got from South Korea, and it's students from just all over the globe, all exchanging like these little tiny pins, um, and you have like the smaller pins from like Iowa and Wyoming because all all fifty United States are re- represented there, but then there's students with um, the Australia students had like pool inflatables around their necks and. <laughs> Oh, they were all like, standing on tables, and it was something I will definitely never forget. Um, it was weird, kind of just walking through a sea of students who were all just like so incredibly diverse. Yet and, so like, much like you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like knowing you can just like talk to any one of them, and like if you like make eye contact with someone like from a few feet away, you're obviously going to talk to that person, um, regardless of like where you come from or uh, what language you speak or um, what pins you have to trade. Yeah, that's cool. Did you count how many pins you have at any point? I, don't, I think it's like 30-something. My favorite so pin is a one from Denver, Colorado. 
It's what a is very, it? Um, it looks like an owl carrying a bunch of arrows in front of a moon, but it was clearly drawn by one of the younger students. Um, That's so cute. It's really cute. Yeah. That's so cute. Um, you mentioned the student mixer. What was that about? The student mixer was uh, the dance party, which it, it takes place. What is it? It's the night. Uh, after judging. Judge, after judging. The night after judging. Yeah. So the, I guess they let y'all go through all of that torture of being judging, judged mm-hmm. for how, how many hours? Eight all day. Hours. Eight hours. And then finally they're like, okay, go have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> after like eight hours of standing on your feet, um, waiting to, being like completely nerve-wracked and scared of all these judges, um, you're kind of released to this big student mixer thing where there's like all the adults are, they're not allowed in or whatever. Um, and it's a, you have all the students in like a dance environment. Actually, hmm. there's like one area that's just a rave, and <laughs> another area with like more like calm, like uh, ping pong and table tennis and um, foosball, and like there's food out in the hallway. Um, but the area we had in Phoenix was really nice. There was like some balconies, or you could see like the entire skyline. Um, and with the Austin group, I did not expect them to be such party animals because they were in the rave the entire time and I was out and then afterwards everyone just kind of goes back because they're all shot from judging and then screaming at the rave <laughs> and then you have to get up at like 8 in the morning the next day for the special award ceremony oh good times good times I love it um yeah I tried to drop you off and they're like nope you can't go upstairs and I was like but I want to see I want to know what's up there I love it <laughs> Okay, so overall, in any way, do you think that this experience will help you in the future? Oh, definitely. Are you kidding me? I mean, besides just soft skills, obviously you've learned soft skills of, like we mentioned earlier, communicating off the cuff, reading people's and expecting um, different questions. But other than that, what do you think, what kind of doors has this opened? Oh, I mean, apart from like, the different research opportunities have been offered, I think, like, three different internships in the past, like, three months alone. Wow. Um, I actually learned how to do actual science through this project, and that's something I... It was something I was definitely expecting going into this, but I didn't realize just how much work it would be and how much it would force me to, like, learn it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Stockholm Junior Water Prize, I had to write a full 20-page, like, write-up which I had never done before ever, and I did it in a weekend, and then placed second in that. Um, and like it's that sort of thing that you can't really learn, I think, in a classroom. You kind of have to just, you have to be in, in the actual environment doing the research firsthand and knowing that this is your work, mm-hmm. which it's kind of a, it's a profound sense, sense of like accomplishment and... Pride. Yeah, pride, really. That's yeah. really neat. To take pride in like, something you've put so much time like I've I've put I think what's it how many hours I think I've put at least 3,000 hours into my marching band career but the amount of pride I get from like presenting a science fair thing is so much more because that's just 100% me right with like marching band which I do love dearly but you're one of 200 other students out in the field who are all coming together to make one thing but at the science fair that's just you. Right. 
and it's all, and it's something it's all you're, on you. And it's something you're passionate about mm-hmm. and that you led and did on your own, which is pretty awesome. A novel experience up to now, yeah. I think. Well, cool. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Man. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I know I've told you that a million times. If you made it all the way to the end, I'm going to start giving a little bonus material at the very end of every episode. So congratulations and thank you. This past week, they competed against over 1,800 students from 80 countries and in Texas very proud by winning multiple prizes in a variety of categories. That, what you just heard, was the pilot on our airplane back from Intel ISAF congratulating all those awesome nerds. And even though you can't understand anything he's saying, know that we all got goosebumps and cheered as loud as we could because it was awesome. And there you have it, high school research enthusiasts. One of my very own students with a heart to change the world. This is Callie Nichols signing off, reminding you to be curious, be strong, and be kind.